that there's many tactics you can start to apply once you you've def- really defined who is the personas, which problems do they care about, and how do we make sure that we answer these questions in a, in a one-to-many shape. B2B has the potential to be electrifying, but the industry is paralyzed by a culture of conservatism. Scared stiff in a straitjacket of rational ideas, it's time for change. It's time to make B2B marketing visceral. Join us as we uncover and explore the truth with leading B2B marketers. This is B2B Marketing, the provocative truth. Hello and welcome to B2B Marketing, the provocative truth. I'm Benedict and today I'm joined by CMO of Dream Data, Stefan Hedebrandt. Stefan, a very, very warm welcome to the podcast. Thank you so much, Benedict. I've been looking forward to, to this given the, the title of, uh, of your podcast. Fantastic. And well, I mean, I assume by the title, we're talking about the provocative truth, which is we always what we try to commit ourselves to and what we will get to shortly. Because uh, today we're going to be speaking about a topic which I think is getting increasing amounts of attention, but I think rightly so. Um, progress has been made, I think, when we sort of talk about how B2B marketers are understanding who their audience are. So they're doing some sort of audience profiling work. I think there is probably separately sort of progress has been made around understanding some of the different dimensions of the purchase decision, certainly within sort of a sales context. But my observation and what was going to be sort of the the fundamentals of my provocative truth is that many, many sort of marketers don't have that sort of full understanding of the purchase decision and the, um, the audience that they're really trying to reach. But even more importantly, they haven't quite worked out how do you piece those two together to actually form the buyer journey? Is that something you would agree with? Yeah, absolutely. And I think I would even uh, be bold enough to express it even more uh, more critical. I think uh, a large part of B2B marketers, um, they don't know what's going on because mm-hmm. the uh, you can say the tools that most people use is not actually wired to understand B2B outcomes. I'm thinking about Google Analytics. I'm thinking about the ad platforms where you typically buy your ads. I'm thinking about the CRM system uh, and those kind of places where people normally go for the truth. They're actually not really good at describing a B2B customer journey with all its complexity of, you know, six to 12 months from the initial touch to the deal being won or the fact that B2Bs are buying as teams and not individuals. What I mean by that is if five people is involved in the deal, it doesn't make sense that Google Analytics will tell you the actions of one browser when that person that owns that one browser might also have a, a computer or a laptop or a, you know, a phone. And there's maybe four people involved that has four different yeah. devices. And it's not able to kind of unify the journey that's really going on. So I think the provocative truth is that most B2B marketers do not have the data to understand their customer journeys today. Painful yet true. Well, I, I think I'm going to have to I take it as a first time, but I take it as a bit of a constructive criticism that I was too generous <laughs> with the provocative truth. So, I felt the so pain next myself. time yeah. I will be far, far, far more critical. And look, I'm really interested to pick up on what you just talked there about some of the technical limitations. But first, and almost just to the sort of a conceptual level, do you think that B2B marketers, by and large, have an understanding of how many different people are involved in the purchase decision? Because 
I've had you know conversations both on the podcast and outside the podcast about how that is absolutely just exploding. And whereas we traditionally were used to maybe one or two people and within a purchase decision, yeah. it's now somewhere in the sort of the magnitude of around eight or nine people of different levels of different functions. How do B2B, do B2B marketers understand that that is now the reality they're grappling with? Of course, there's... Uh don't want to cut all, all on, the, on the same, uh, you know, under one roof. But I mm -hmm. think particularly just right now at the time where we're in, where like, you know, the world is becoming a bit more conservative on the money part. Mm -hmm. Maybe there's recession lurking. We can definitely feel that at Dream Data, that deals take longer time what they used to. More people is asking questions about what's actually going on. I think what's what's happening as well is that in this in this time is that you used to just you know for us it would be we need to have control of the marketing leader and perhaps there's an ops person mm -hmm. but now there's a lot of stakeholder holders that actually play a part which we don't even see perhaps the cfo is out there asking critical questions perhaps there's a procurement department perhaps the sales manager is now having an opinion about marketing tools etc and uh, if you're not aware about these things uh, it can be hard to be successful with selling. And um, I think it's important to say when, when, when we do marketing, the most important thing that we do is that we help the company sell to create more revenue. <laughs> so if this is the fact that these people are now starting to influence the buyer's journey uh, in these times where everybody has to be careful about their money, we also need to think about what are the marketing actions we can take to help our champions who have expressed an interest actually selling that product that you have like conceptually sold to the first person you speak with, they still need to go throughout their organization and, and sell the product uh, as well. So it strikes me that almost the first step that uh, marketers need to go through is actually to map out what does that purchase decision look like? Who are all of these disparate people that might be involved in that? But in practical terms, how would you recommend that marketers go about that exercise there's many ways, of course, but uh, like a simple way would be just to, you know, pull out all the deals you won in the last quarter or the last year, whatever you need to get enough volume and look inside the CRM system and see, okay, how many contacts do we know on these deals? Mm -hmm. You could probably pretty easy export that into a spreadsheet and then add the titles to, to mm -hmm. all these people. And then you could summarize do we think that this is all the people who are involved in choosing us as a vendor or not? It might be that if you get the marketing person, the sales person, the customer success person into the room, that some would say, oh, actually in the sales process, we heard that they're taking our contract now to the legal department or they're presenting a business case to the mm. CFO, which we don't actually know about because it's not the person that we're like firsthand communicating with. So. I think your teams will actually hold this knowledge if they just kind of verbalize it together, trying to describe who is it that we hear mentioned when, we, when we're on sales calls. What you're describing there is a simple process, but I would hazard a guess that very, very few businesses, not bother, sorry, they actually create the time to go through uh, and sit down and, and you know work out who is involved because you say the information is there. Yeah. Now you spoke there about customer success team, you spoke there about the, sort of the sales team, you spoke there about the marketing team. From your perspective, who should be responsible for owning the, the full sort of buyer journey and designing what that should look like? Mm, good question. Um, 
So the way we do it uh, at Dream Data is that we we perceive us all being part of uh, the revenue team, meaning mm-hmm. the people in sales, the people in marketing, the team in customer success. If we're not producing enough revenue, it's the problem of everyone. So that means that I, for example, as the marketing leader, sits in on all weekly sales meetings. So I listen to what does the salespeople talk about. Um we, you know, pay closely attention to who are the CS team speaking with. If there's any bad fit deals that get signed, um, we will tell the salespeople, hey, you probably oversold here or you shouldn't have sold here. Or mm-hmm. I think it's a, I think the, the fundamental uh, exercise you need to do is to decide upon uh, who is your ideal customer profile for your company. Yep. Meaning that who are we most likely to win when we're in sales conversations with who can we get the most money out of, but also who's most likely to become happy customers. Uh, particularly when you're in a subscription business uh, that we're in, then you don't want somebody who who's not going to renew their contract because your investors are going to be tearing their hair out if the churn rate is, uh, is too high. So I think that the first step is really aligning the company towards who is it really that we strategically are trying to sell to? Who do we exist for to to help? Um, then I think there's different models. Some has kind of a CCO or CRO that kind of is responsible from the first touch until the deal is signed and renewed. Uh, at our company, we we have uh, a revenue team where we basically the leaders of each team is kind of have a, a committee that kind of owns. Uh, the, the the buying cycle where I in my marketing is responsible for like the initial contact and the sales team is responsible for winning those those contacts over to deals and going through that exercise of um, identifying who your ideal um, customer client is um, obviously it's very very important but especially with the sort of economic conditions we've got at the moment where there's such a focus on just well we've got to get revenue we've got to get revenue um from your either experience directly or you know speaking to peers within the wider industry is that a real struggle at the moment for whether it's a marketing team whether it's the sort of wider revenue team creating that time and space to say this is our ideal customer and we're going to be really disciplined about only going for that um profile of individual it's it's an exercise that is easy to to postpone, uh, mm. particularly in good times, because you know even though you're not do you're not great at executing, like you're still selling what you need to sell, and there's enough resources. <laughs> but once there's not enough resources, you really need to decide upon if the product team can only build one, two, three features. You better make sure that those features are for those ideal customers that you have defined which are the ones that marketing tries to attract, which, which, which are the ones that say the sales team is, is trying to sell to uh, as well. Um, I think it's also a painful exercise to do sometimes that you actually have to proactively decide to say mm, perhaps no <laughs> to certain mm-hmm. customers, even though they're, they're knocking your door saying, let's try your product. But but yeah, again, if you're particularly if you're in a subscription business, maybe you don't want to take on that customer who you know is going to be a, a mess for the CRS team and they're probably not going to renew either. So all your retention metrics is going to suffer afterwards. But I know for like from when we did this ideal customer exercise that it's very painful to to decide upon. We're not going to be everything for everybody and we're going to be try to be something for, for this particular audience. 
And how how important was um, data in you making that decision about who the ideal customer was and how much of it was almost just a sort of a, a thought exercise that you, you went through anecdotally thinking about where the good customer experiences have been and then almost using those as, as reference accounts? So I think that was... Uh a bit of both for us because like we're we're now 40 people and we did it at a time where when we were 10 15 people or so so we, it was kind of we're still we're still starting out so you know we didn't have massive amounts of data about mm. uh, close to one uh, customers the data we, that we did have available would be things as you know you can look up how many customers does salesforce have how many customers does HubSpot have, et cetera. And then we try to do some math upon like, okay, if we focused on the the customers of these three or four big CRM systems, is it a market big enough for us to, to sell a lot, to be an attractive company for investors, et cetera. So there was definitely some, some math we could do about market size mm -hmm. with publicly available mm -hmm. data. But then there was also the, the notion that kind of our product lives off digital touch points. Like we describe customer journeys based out of digital touches. So there was also certain industries where there's probably not that many touch, digital touch points. If, you know, if you're a carpenter and you go out and meet, <laughs> build houses mm. and then you meet, shake hands and have steaks for dinner <laughs> and stuff like that. Whereas, uh, there's other types of businesses where this digital touches from the first touch, uh, the awareness phase, all the way to inside sales and the sales team winning deals and customers renewing contracts. But I guess in most, most cases, you need to look at, if you have enough data, you can look at who's actually renewing contracts. Mm -hmm. uh, it would probably be my first place to look because that's an expression of them really being happy. And then I would try to go out and get more of those customers that are really, really happy about uh, your product. But again, yeah, it depends on which face you're at and how much history you have uh, available. Indeed. All right, so we've, we've got the situation where we, we know who we're targeting. We've got the, 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 um, the ideal sort of clients. We've got our targets accounts. We're going to be disciplined about it. Uh, now to sort of bring us back to actually something you mentioned at the beginning of uh, this that... Um, it's very, very difficult or there aren't the means um, for sort of getting information about all of the different people who are involved within the sort of the purchase decision, because actually often when you're looking at some of these the sort of the digital metrics, um, sorry, digital data that's coming through, um, it's purely focused on, on one individual. Mm. How do you go about building up a sophisticated picture of those different individuals who are involved within the buying decision and what their particular drivers are, what their particular behavior is using the tools that are available to B2B marketers. Yeah. So first of all, we, we use our own product, which is, uh, which is called dream data. And we, we basically, for every deal that you win, we know every person who's involved and the path that they took, the title that they have, which touches <laughs> matter for them, et cetera. But then we rely also very much on um, a tool like Gong, uh, which our sales team use, where they, um, Gong is, uh, do you, are you familiar with it, Benedict? I'm, I'm actually not. No, it's, they, it's they, rec it's, they record every sales conversation digitally mm -hmm. and then it gets transcribed and then you can search out for different topics and things that are that the customers ask and stuff like that. So you can actually go by role, by account size, et cetera, and find out what is actually the salespeople that what are they talking with uh, with these customers 
And then what 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 would what do you do with that that data? Uh, and what's that sort of role that, that marketing then plays about sort of both coordinating activity, but also I think joining up different activity, joining up the different conversations that are going on with people involved in the purchase decision. Yeah, good point. So yeah, then the first thing is trying to understand who are they. What do they care about? But then you actually need to produce an output that is to to address uh, these matters, and you know that typically comes in in various shapes of uh, of content. Uh, as one thing, like I really believe that a website should answer any given question that a customer might have about your company. So the answers are not hidden behind whatever the the salesperson uh, knows. So I would think about creating different sections on the website that addresses the questions of, you know, what does the uh, the revenue ops team need to know about this product? What does the engineers need to know about our product? What does the marketing team need to know about our product? So at, at some point, then you should uh, have a fully fledged website that addresses mm-hmm. the questions that each of these personas in your buyer journey sits with mm-hmm. so that, at least they have the opportunity to find their answer for themselves. But the sales team can also use these uh, tactically when they hear about, oh, you're going to see the CFO. Well, let me show you this business case calculator that we've 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 built. Or it can be different disciplines like building social proof <laughs> that you can actually trust your product through like collecting reviews on review platforms or building success cases or helping facilitate that that one prospect meets another customer or you host events where customers and prospect is together, et cetera. So I think the, the, you know, you know this yourself, Benedict, that there's many tactics you can start to apply once you, you've def- really defined who is the personas, which problems do yeah. they care about and how do we make sure that we answer these questions in a, in a one to many shape? No, I mean, you're making it sound very, very straight, straightforward and simple. And I appreciate that. a lot of complexity <laughs> and work that goes in, in behind that. And, and just very quickly, actually, we, talk, we talked about you talked about personas there, and you yeah. talked about having the detail on on everybody. Personas are something which is a little bit of a dirty word sometimes within marketing. Um, people feel that they don't really add the value that they purport to be. Um, when you look at a persona, what is the key bits of information that you want to see on that one page um, document which talks about the persona? What are the really key bits of information? It's actually funny now that you when, once you started saying it, I didn't feel that critical about persona. Uh, but if when, and once you describe it as kind of uh, something you have on a piece of paper, uh, I start mm. to get like a, a bit cringe <laughs> because, like, I think you want to have objectively verifiable information written down. Mm. So that can be uh, if you take the company side of it, it can be how big is the company, where is it located, uh, how much funding do they have, which yep. CRM system do they use, etc. Mm. And then there's something about the persona. What is the title? What are they responsible for? What kind of metrics are they responsible for? But as you're kind of indicating, it cannot just be a piece of paper. You need to be like you mm. need to to talk to these guys. You need to arrange calls with them. You need to arrange events. You need to have beers with them, where you kind of get under their skin and actually sense like what is the vocabulary that they use. What are the metrics that they, they're going to be hammered with by the CEO or the CFO, etc. So there's I think there's like there's the theoretical discipline you do, which I think mm-hmm. is valuable that you write it down on a piece of paper. But you you need to get the voice and tone of this persona. Like, 
how do they speak, which acronyms do they like mm. to use, uh, and so forth. So, yeah, it's not just uh, an exercise on a piece of paper. It's a matter of actually making Absolutely. friends with these guys as well. Absolutely. I liked actually what you talked about there in terms of vocabulary. Uh, I think that's something which is, you know, is, is often overlooked, but successful relationships are based on being able to speak the same language. And I'm not talking language in terms of it's, it's Spanish or French or anything like that, but fundamentally to be able to sort of talk in their language of their priorities, I think is so, so key. And actually just, a, it's an easy exercise to go through, but I think actually can make a huge difference. The other sort of part that I think that you st were starting to refer to, and I think is so important within a persona is it can't just be a rational description of their job title and their priorities and, and what they are measured on. You've got to try to sort of build a little bit of a picture about what their emotional drivers are. How are they typically responding to the stresses or excitements um, within <laughs> their role? Because when yeah. it comes to marketing and putting together decent, compelling marketing messages, you've got to understand about how to get them in the head, but also to absolutely get them sort of in the guts as well, so to speak. So I think a persona has got to be, as you say, more than a document, but also really has to have that nuance of both the firmographic information, but also very, very much them as a, a person potentially as well. And yeah, and maybe I add to that also like timing or timely messaging as well, mm. because the what we were saying uh, before Putin invaded uh, Russia where, you know, it's blue mm. skies and just go out and spend whatever you'd like. Yeah. It's a very different world now that marketers are living in. Like people are getting fired left and right. Budgets are being cut, etc. So we cannot just talk about you need to go spend more money on all sorts of stuff. Mm. Now, now it's about efficiency, about getting making the most of your money, etc. So you need to follow the the talk of the town and like like make slight adjustments to, to what's topical in, in this day and time. Uh, and not keep it stale uh, for for a long while. Uh, absolutely, and I think it, again that sort of ties back to sort of this idea of understanding their emotional state as well. Because you, we talk there about sort of people getting uh, fired, that increased sort of scrutiny. So understanding, or at least trying to sort of think about, well, how does that manifest for the individual? Is that creating a sense of anxiety? Is that creating a sense of um, you know going into themselves and ultra conservatism? It, but trying to understand what that sort of driver is, it makes you much more effective whether you're looking at marketing communications or, or looking at sales communications or, or whatever it, it yeah. might be. Yeah, I really agree. Uh, well, look, as in, I've, I've sort of finished that part there talking about how we need to sort of connect with people on an emotional level as well as a, a rational level, which is a nice segue to um, the final question that I'd like to ask you, which is we never let anyone leave without answering this question. <laughs> um, and that's when was the last time that you saw a piece of marketing? It could be an advert, it could be a piece of creative, it could be a report, it could be you know, almost anything that really made you feel it in your guts, that moved you on that deep emotional level? So I'm following this podcast, a Danish uh, Danish podcast about football, uh, and they really led a campaign now into, uh, into not running, uh, having partners on the show from betting partners, casino partners, and now they, they stepped into also saying no uh, to, to alcohol uh, partners. And the, that's kind of like the three biggest one normally in sports. And, and this topic is just really close to my heart because of I absolutely love watching football. I have done so my whole life, but I, I think it's just so plastered into companies, which I don't understand why people would go uh, to work for, which is just 
deliberately making the world a worse place by making people addicted to gambling or alcohol or something like that. So the, this uh, podcast called Mediano, they're now explicitly saying we're staying away from all these partners. We will run, try to run a model now instead where we our members contribute whatever they want so we can keep producing high quality football uh, content for you guys. And I that really, really sits right in my gut that you have an opinion that you take a stand and try to make things work in a different way that is for the better of of the future of this planet if you if you ask me yeah well, and that's incredibly powerful in terms of communicating what your brand stands for and i know that the whole sort of topic of betting company involvement um uh you know alcohol involvement in sports is under continued scrutiny and i think just this in the past week the the premier league in in england have, yeah so said they're going to move away from having primary shirt sponsors as um, as betting companies. So I think yeah, a really nice example of how taking a sort of a defiant stand um, can be very powerful in terms of communicating your brand value uh, and also getting people to talk about you as well. Um, so, Stefan, I mean, thanks very much for sharing that example. And also thanks very much for the sort of the wider conversation. I think it's... It's so key, especially now so more than ever, that we do get a proper understanding of the purchase decision, proper understanding of who's, who's involved within that buyer journey and to be making the right sort of decisions as, as a result of that. I think the sort of the big things that sort of like stood out to me is, firstly, it's about getting an understanding that there's multiple people within it. Um, it's that being disciplined about who your ideal target customer is and then making that more manageable in terms of thinking about the different people who would be involved. Um, and then also, I really, really liked the, the the little sort of tactic that you talked about, which is to invest time in understanding the sort of the vernacular and the vocabulary that is used by uh, prospects within a persona. So, Stefan, I think a really, really informative conversation. Thank you very much. And thank you very much for joining me on the podcast. Thank you, Benedict. B2B Marketing, The Provocative Truth is brought to you by Allen Agency. To find out more, head to allen-agency.com. You can stream B2B Marketing The Provocative Truth on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or anywhere else great podcasts are found. And don't forget to click subscribe to ensure you don't miss out on any future episodes. On behalf of the team here at Allen, thanks for listening.